energy so stalling, yeah. Everybody's running scared. We used to be so carefree, we used to be so happy, used to have everything we need. Welcome to Village Mentality, where melanated people are connected in spirit, love, and community. What's up, kings and queens, beautiful people everywhere? It's your girl, C.K. McGee, and I am your host. Hey there, beautiful people. How's everyone doing? I pray that you're all doing as well as you can be. Now, welcome back for another episode of Village Mentality. Due to some technical difficulties, I was actually away for a little while, I think about a month or so. So I want you to know all is well. I'm here in the village. I'm glad that you're here with me in the village. And you know, you're welcome each and every Wednesday to join me here at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Now I'd like to give a shout out and a very warm welcome to those of you who may be tuning in for the very first time. And if you're looking to see what Village Mentality is all about, then look no more, because I invite you to catch up on all previous episodes of Village Mentality, and you can catch them on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Anchor, Radio Public, and The Awakened Lounge. I also provide links to each episode on Instagram and Facebook, and I'll share those links with you at the end of the show. But thank you all again so much for joining. Now, as a mental health advocate with lived experience, each week I'll be talking about different topics that could impact our mental health, particularly within BIPOC communities. As an African-American woman, it only stands to reason that I would be concerned about communities of color and their mental health. Now, as far as our mental health is concerned, it really does not matter who you are or where you're from because we can all be impacted, okay? So everybody is included in a concern about mental health, all right? We may not all have mental illness, but we do all have mental health and we need to make sure that we are taking care of it. Now, the purpose of this podcast, ladies and gentlemen, is to bring awareness to the many different ways in which our mental health can be affected, showing that poor mental health outcomes are not always caused by chemical imbalance, but it can be caused from various stressors, trauma, or circumstances that we all face from time to time in our lives, okay? Now, through education and advocacy, individuals like myself who have lived experience, the hope is that we'll be able to show up in more effective ways to support those around us that may be suffering, okay? Now, what's important to recognize is that the stigma of mental illness and conversations about our mental health can be more difficult for marginalized and intersectional groups, and it interferes with our ability to take care of our mental health as we should. 
Now, self-care is something that I'm always talking about here on the show. It is an important tool that I encourage us all to use. And as a matter of fact, this evening, I'll be talking about how we can practice self-care in ways that you may not even realize you can. We spend a lot of our time, Village, taking care of others. But we need to remember that we cannot pour from an empty cup. And so let's remember to take care of ourselves as well for the sake of our overall health and well-being. And doing this will help to rejuvenate our spirits and souls so that we can continue to be the fantabulous kings and queens that we most definitely are. And I'll be right here. I'll be right here to remind us all of that fact each and every week. Now, if you have heard the show before, then you know, you know that you know that there'll be plenty of music too. And tonight, I thought I'd play some music from the Motor City. <laughs> yes, Motown will definitely be in the building this evening, kings and queens. That Motown sound spans over several decades. And so I hope that you'll sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Now, without further ado, I believe that it's time for me to take my first walk of the evening, my musical jukebox. Our first song, Beautiful People, was written by Norman Whitfield and Barrett Strong for Motown Records in 1966. Now, this version was the second to be recorded, but it was actually the third to be released, okay? It was placed on his 1968 album, In the Groove. It got the attention of radio DJs and Barry Gordy. He finally agreed to release it as a single in October of 1968. And it went straight to the top, baby, straight to the top of the Billboard pop singles chart for seven weeks, overtaking the previous version that was released, which was recorded by none other than Gladys Knight, and the pips, but it became the biggest hit single on the Motown label. Now, by the way, here's a little tidbit for some of you who may not know this. This song was first recorded by the Miracles, Smokey Robinson and the Miracles to be exact, but that version was never released. Here's Marvin Gaye with I Heard It Through the Grapevine. Show hands to make me blue with 
That was the Jackson Five with I Want You Back. It was their first national single and it became the first number one hit single for the group in 1969. They performed it on their very first television appearance on October 18th, 1969 on Diana Ross's The Hollywood Palace. And they also had an unforgettable milestone performance on the Ed Sullivan Show. Mm -hmm. It was memorable indeed. Now it reached number one on the Soul Singles chart where it stayed for four weeks. And it also held the number one position on the Billboard Hot 100 Singles chart. This song was ranked number 104 on Rolling Stones Magazine's 500 Greatest Songs of All Time. Now, if you've ever been to Hasty Village in kicking somebody to the curb, I don't know, who knows? Maybe this song could help you get or give another chance. Well, Village, you know me. I like to take a little bit of time to talk about some things, all right? Whether it be about current events, entertainment, or something that's just on my mind. So why don't we get into my segment called Let's Talk About It. Now Village, the last time that I was with you, it was BIPOC Mental Health Awareness Month. Okay, that was back in July. Even though we're in the month of August, there are still some things that I wanna share with you about this very important topic. So I'd like to talk to you about the glaring disparities that BIPOC communities face when it comes to accessing mental health services, okay? So when we're dealing, you know, with challenging times such as we've been for these past couple of years, you know, concerning the global pandemic, which helped to illuminate issues like mental health and wellness, uh, there were also some communities who were hardest hit by that pandemic, right? We also had the Black Lives Matter movement, which was in full swing given the situations with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery, et cetera. The list is endless, right? And that continued to bring attention to the issue of police brutality against African-Americans. And more recently, we've been looking at hate crimes against our brothers and sisters in the Asian community. Now, BIPOC communities statistically are the least likely to receive quality mental health services. So here are some factors that make it difficult for underserved communities to receive care and some suggestions as to what healthcare providers can do to overcome accessibility disparities. Now, let me just say that uh, previously, BIPOC Mental Health Awareness Month uh, was known as the National Minority Mental Health Month, okay? But, you know, there are some organizations out there that are beginning to turn away from utilizing that term because it only takes into account the quantity of a group, all right? And the reasoning behind the change is something that you often hear me say. Words matter and language has a significant impact on the way we think about groups of people. So that's why Black, Indigenous, and people of color has replaced the term minority. So that instead of being lumped under one nondescript term, the differences between the lived experience of each group can be highlighted. Now, things are always evolving, beautiful people, because at the end of the day, it is all about inclusivity. 
and we want to make sure that every voice is counted. So do not be surprised if I'm coming to you in the near future to provide an updated term. Okay. Now, research has shown that BIPOC groups are less likely to have access to mental health services, less likely to seek out treatment, more likely to receive low or poor quality of care, more likely to end services early. Okay. And, you know, why end services early? Well, if you're not getting, you know, the care that you need, that you require, why would you continue? Right. Some of these barriers can be attributed to a variety of factors, such as cultural stigma around mental illness, systemic racism and discrimination, language barriers, a lack of health insurance, mistrust of mental health care providers, and the lack of cultural competency on the part of mental health care providers, all right? So first, let's talk about racism and discrimination. Systemic racism and discrimination practices have long been, okay, <laughs> a profound uh, stain, if you will, in our history and in our present. It's something that's not going away. And it's happened and been here within our country for, for centuries, right? And the mental health care industry is not exempt from that. Now, while it's true that mental health conditions, you know, can appear regardless of race, ethnicity, gender, or identity, sometimes these factors are the very things that make it significantly more difficult for someone to receive mental health treatment, all right? Some populations are more likely to be exposed to risk factors that increase the chances of developing a mental health condition. What do I mean? Well, such as homelessness and exposure to violence, as a result of other forms of systemic racism. I've mentioned before that poor mental health outcomes don't happen just because of chemical imbalance. They can also be the result of external circumstances, okay? I've mentioned already homelessness. I've mentioned, you know, systemic racism, but also food insecurity, gun violence, etc. okay? And that's on top of the fact that you may not be aware all right, that these things can impact your mental health. And that's why I'm here to provide that awareness and to educate you to the fact and to bring you the deets, give you the details as to the ways that we can take care of our mental health, right? Now, number two, stigma. Stigma is huge when it comes to conversations about mental health, when it comes to attitudes about mental health. And, you know, strides have been made in recent years to destigmatize the subject of mental illness and treatment, but many people in marginalized communities face internal stigma when it comes to getting help. Victor Armstrong, who's a member of the National Council for Behavioral Health Board of Directors, spoke to the social stigma, specifically in Black communities. He says, and I quote, for many in the African-American community, our story is one of perseverance and resilience. After all, we survived slavery. Surely we can survive, quote unquote, sadness or quote unquote, anxiety. In this mindset, anything less would be considered a spiritual or moral weakness. The problem in part is that we often fail to recognize that mental illness is much more than feeling melancholy or anxious. It is not a sign of weakness, and it does not discriminate based on skin color. 
we fail to recognize mental illness as an illness, as we would cancer, diabetes, or high blood pressure. So in short, there are some communities that view mental illness as a personal failing or weakness rather than a real diagnosable and treatable condition. And I can tell you that it's one thing to face stigma outside of your own community, outside of the home where family is the closest to you, where you supposedly have the closest bonds or with friends that you've known for numbers of years. When that stigmatized language and attitude and behavior comes from within what's supposed to be considered a safe space for you, it is not only disheartening, hurtful, painful, but it can, you know, plunge people into silence where they don't share just how impactful, you know, uh, their symptoms may be. It may cause them to isolate and withdraw. Because if the people who are supposed to have your back don't have your back, then how can you actually expect that out in the world, somebody there will, you know? So it makes it kind of hard when you're faced with internal stigma. A lot of communities of color face that. The next thing that we need to talk about is the limited access to quality care. Language barriers and differences in communication and also make it incredibly challenging for BIPOC people to get the care that they need. There are higher proportions of BIPOC people who speak a language other than English, which can make finding a local provider a difficult task, all right? Also, providers don't always reflect the communities that they serve. Now, although mental illness appears to affect various racial groups at similar rates, the vast majority of mental health treatment providers in the United States are white. There was a study that was done in 2015 where it showed that approximately 86% of psychologists were white, but by contrast, only 2% of American Psychological Association members were black. Village, I've shared this with you before. <clears throat> Excuse me. About two to four percent of black and brown are represented when it comes to psychiatrists, psychologists, and social workers, okay? So nine times out of 10, you're not gonna be sitting across the table from, from somebody who looks like you. The lack of diversity, it creates a significant gap in experiences and understanding between providers and those seeking treatment. Additionally, without similar relevant lived experiences, providers are not a part of the BIPOC community, and therefore they have a tendency to underestimate the effects that racism and discrimination play on a person's mental health, potentially leading to a diminished quality of treatment. Now, let's say that we weren't even talking about mental health. I know, again, for a fact that there are people who are not people of color who do not experience racism and discrimination that doubt it when it's talked about. I had a friendship that actually ended over such an, uh, an event. I was explaining to this person that I was being discriminated against at a particular job. And because this person uh, was familiar with the individuals that I was talking about, they doubted 
the story that I was telling them. They doubted the information that I was giving them. And we had known each other a number of years. He was also somebody who had been aware of another event that happened, you know, at the workplace that actually led to the, the termination of an employee because of that racist discriminatory behavior. So, you know, my thing is at this point, you're still looking at me side-eyed when I'm telling you, I'm sharing with you the experiences that I'm having. Can't have friends around like that, can we? I can't. Now, there's a lot of talk these days, beautiful people, about diversity and inclusivity. And that's at the heart of proposed solutions to close the gap between mental health care providers and the communities that they serve. Cultural competency is a term that you may have heard me use on the show before, and it is a type of training that emphasizes the importance of culture, cultural identity, and intersectionality, a term that was coined by Kimberly Crenshaw. Now, areas of exploration in these sessions can be about intersectionality, power dynamics, stereotypes, biases, and microaggressions. These are all things that people of color face each and every day in one way or another. All right. Sometimes it may not be overt, you know, uh, uh, racism, all right, where somebody gets hurt. It, It may not be that, but it can be a microaggression. And I talked to you on the show about microaggressions before. Go back to that episode and listen to what microaggressions are or better yet, look it up for yourself. And then you might be able to like think of certain examples maybe in your experiences on a day-to-day basis where it could have happened to you. Now, it is considered to be a core component of the whole person or let's say a holistic approach, okay, to behavioral health care meaning that a number of factors are now being taken into account by providers when treating someone and they go, it goes beyond race. It it goes beyond the diagnosis, right? You're looking at a person's whole life and the things that are happening within their life, you know, Um, you know, like socioeconomic status, for instance, Um, whether you are, you know, are or around, you know, someone, you know, with substance use, Um, you know, disorder. Um, It can be about food instability. Like there's a lot of other factors, again, external situations that can happen that can impact your mental health. And they're starting to recognize that now, right? So, you know, everyone has mental health. We need to learn to steer conversations away from only highlighting the negative or difficult elements of mental health because that's not all that exists. No. So we have to also include the positive experiences and the feelings that come with that, too. Now, bringing awareness to the fact that BIPOC communities face different types of barriers to receiving quality mental health treatment is only the first step in the path toward mental health equity, right? And BIPOC Mental Health Awareness Month is a great way to bring these issues to the forefront of our minds. But it's important to work toward improved accessibility and care all year around. And the thing of it is, Village, together we can break the silence, we can dismantle stigma, and we can create safe spaces so that the people around us with mental health conditions can seek the quality mental health care that should be accessible to everyone no matter what their background is. I want to give a shout out to Jefferson Center out in Wheat Ridge, Colorado for providing this very important information 
that I've shared with you this evening. Here's to brighter days. All right, kings and queens. Now, if you've been a frequent listener of this podcast, then you know that I'm always talking about the importance of self-care, self-care, self-care. It's not just about bubble baths and chocolates. No, no, no. It's not something that's just for all my queens out there or my queens in training, but it is something that is very important for all of us in the village to implement into our daily lives, right? Taking care of ourselves better equips us to take care of others. And I know that you've all heard the saying, so I'm going to say it again. You can't pour from an empty cup. And if you think about it, it is a true statement. Can a car run with no gas? Huh? If you put gas in the tank, you're doing so because you know that that's what's necessary in order for your car to function properly, among other things. But it is a key component, right? That's all I'm saying about self-care. And we need to have ways to replenish and rejuvenate our energies and spirits so that we can be at our best for others, particularly if you're in the helping profession, right? First responder, a teacher, a doctor, a lawyer, somebody who's always helping others. Burnout is definitely a factor if you're not taking care of yourselves. Now, before I continue talking about how embodiment can be used for self-care, because that's what I'm gonna be talking about, let's take a look at what embodiment means. All right, there are many definitions for the word embodiment, and it really depends on the perspective. And so in this case, for the sake of this discussion tonight, uh, since we're talking about self-care, the definition that best fits embodiment is the moment-to-moment process by which human beings may be um, allowing awareness to enhance the flow of sensations, feelings, thoughts, images, and energies through their bodily cells. Now, in the wellness community, embodiment has been used alongside mindfulness because they are similar in that they both encourage us to focus on the present moment. Now, mindfulness is something that's associated a lot with meditation. If you're, you know, um, at all aware of, you know, meditation or you've, you've tried it, I have, and it's, it's a work um it's a work in progress for me i totally you know sometimes i i I do it every day then i have to kind of leave it um and come back to it but basically what mindfulness is asking you to do is to stop basically beating yourself up about everything that's happened in the past those mistakes that you've made and the things that you've done wrong and you can't change the past it has happened okay and it's not going to serve you well to continue to dwell on those past hurts what you can do is learn from it and move on but you can't continue to dwell on it right and then on the converse side of things we look to the future and you know there's so much uncertainty we really don't know how the future is going to turn out sometimes we can really you know um get ourselves worked up about the unknown what mindfulness says is just focus on the here and now like pay attention to what's going on now Okay, and and that kind of centers you and brings you a little bit more peace than beating yourself up about the past and worrying about a future that you have no idea about. Okay, now 
while mindfulness focuses on slowing down to become conscious of the world around us, embodiment is specific to our physical nature. And it wants us to remember that our bodies and our minds, they're not separate, but connected. Now, the author of this article that I'm extracting this information from, um, her name is Katie Christian. And she talks about an experience in college that she had. Now, she had a short stint as a runner, okay? And she thought every day while she was at the track, that no matter what, no matter if her body was exhausted, if her body was injured, she would just lace up and recite to herself that famous phrase that you know that you've heard before too, mind over matter. She says that she believed that she needed to listen to her mind and not her body in order to achieve her running goals. Now, she didn't understand that the two were connected and that they spoke to one another. And I think that if you think about it, Village, we can relate to that, right? I mean, how many times have you felt hungry or exhausted or you weren't feeling well physically, but you allowed your mind to tell you to ignore those things, those signs, the ways that your body was communicating to you so that you could achieve whatever was on your agenda, right? Sound familiar? Huh? Huh? Come on, be honest. Now, thinking that the mind and the body are separate is a belief that goes back centuries. But don't feel bad. It's not just you are not alone, as Michael Jackson would say. All right. There was a time when it was thought that the body was, quote unquote, sinful, and therefore it needed to be controlled. This thinking has influenced us so much that it's impacted the way that we process stress and anxiety today. And would you believe me if I told you that sometimes we use technology to check out? I mean, you know you do, right? You go to the scroll because you really don't want to think about what's going on, or you feel like maybe you need to calm down a little bit because you just had a real pressurized situation, you know, or you're playing a game of solitaire. You know what I'm talking about. Come on now. This mind-body dualism can also impact the way that we experience trauma. If we've been physically harmed, we might not feel safe in our physical selves. But finally, a 20th century philosopher came along by the name of Maurice Merleau-Ponty, and he recognized that the world cannot be experienced without the body and that the self and reality comprise each other. He stated, quote, we have a body, but we are also a body. And there is no me without my body, unquote. Makes sense, right? Merleau-Ponty also believed that our body was very much a part of our existence, but that it had been reduced and objectified, which is why we feel disconnected from it at times, right? Now, we can return to our physical selves, village. We can connect to our bodies again. We need to see them as an extension of who we are, no matter how they look or function. Now, let me just share with you. Um, I, I talk sometimes every once in a while about exercising and exercising for me has been something that I've been, you know, working on. Sometimes I can be off with it. Sometimes I can be on with it. But lately I've been completely and totally on. Right. And it is something that, you know, is helpful to me. It, it does help my symptoms of depression when I exercise. And that feeling of achievement at the end of that workout session also feels really good too, right? The more you can achieve, the better you feel, which is the point. 
right? Besides, of course, you know, the physical aspect of it and wanting to lose weight and things like that. But let me just share this with you. So I work out with like this online group and um, one of the, you know, facilitators, if you will, that I, I pretty much like am consistently working out with, he has mentioned some things that have really changed the way that I see exercise, right? Instead of seeing it as this chore, like, oh my God, I got to get up and I need to work out or, oh, that's right. I got to work out today. He's made me look at it in a completely different way. And what he has said basically is we should feel like it's a privilege. We should feel like it's a pleasure for us to be able to move our bodies the way that we do. All right. It's a miracle. Our bodies are beautiful. And when he said that, it made me recognize that, wait a minute, like the Bible says, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And our bodies have been constructed in such a way that we can walk and, and we can run and we can bend and we can do jumping jacks and we can talk and we can smell and we can taste. It's magnificent at its best each and every day. Why wouldn't you want to celebrate that, right? Recognize the blessing in being able to move your body every day, no matter what the activity is that you're doing or how minute you may think it is, right? And once he said that, I'm telling you, Village, I attack my exercises every single morning. I'm getting up in the morning like, let's get it. Let's get after it as opposed to having an attitude of feeling like it's some kind of chore. That language is what changed it. When you change the way you see things, the things you see will change, right? And that's exactly what has happened. And so I, I feel privileged. It's a pleasure every single morning that I'm get, able to get up, able to move my body in these ways, you know, sometimes exerting myself. I feel pleasure. Why? Because unfortunately, there are some of our brothers and sisters out there in our village who are not able to do so. Think about that, all right? Let that marinate for a moment. So how can we practice embodiment or self-care? Well, first, it's about taking up space, right? Now, if you've ever been told to make yourself smaller, queens, you might sometimes know what I'm talking about, or invisible, this can feel especially scary as disembodiment is something that many of us practice subconsciously since we've learned that we're not allowed to show up in our complete form. Kings, you understand what that means too, right? Not being able to show up in your complete form because people are intimidated. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying. Now, disembodiment can also be a survival mechanism when we've experienced physical trauma or harm. We leave our bodies because our bodies don't feel safe. But what we can do is we can practice returning to our bodies by first becoming conscious of how we take up space in a room. Notice how you feel, beautiful people, when you walk into a space. How do you feel, right? Pay attention to the way your limbs sway or how your bottom feels when you're sitting down in the chair. Can you feel the wind on your face, right? Does your body feel heavy? Is it lightweight? Take some notes about how you feel. I mean, mental notes, how you feel in your physical form. And even if the feeling is uncomfortable or scary, 
make a note of it, right? There's no judgment. There's no goal to be had. It's just an observation that you should, you know, that you should try, try it, check it out. Next, plant your feet. You know, I'm always talking about standing 10 toes down, flat footed. Well, plant your feet. Practice relaxing your body when engaging in daily tasks. Even breathing deeply is something many of us forget to do. You know how many times I've asked my friends, colleagues, coworkers, what have you, about breathing? Like there have been times where I feel like I gotta, I don't know, catch my breath or like I have this feeling like I haven't been breathing. And the truth of the matter is sometimes you do you might forget to take those deep breaths in and out and just really feel that all throughout your body from your head to your toes. You know what I'm saying? And it almost makes me feel sometimes like I've been holding my breath, but I just haven't been aware of it. I'm not sure if you can relate, but that's what I've experienced. And when you're meditating, breathing, again, is one of the key elements that they focus on when you're meditating. And the thing about breathing you know you can do it anywhere you can practice it while doing the dishes driving your car lying in bed it relaxes your body <clears throat> okay so by taking some deep breaths because a lot of us hold tension in our shoulders so if you notice that you're hunching yourself hunching over then do a few shoulder rolls right to like loosen it up and if you have a king or queen somewhere, maybe they might help you with a little mas massage of the shoulders, right? <laughs> you can also ask about that. But plant your feet also while you're sitting. It may sound really simple, but having both feet placed on the ground can literally be, well, like, I don't know, grounding? <laughs> no pun intended. This can work while you're standing too. Notice how your feet are connected to the floor and how they're supporting your body, right? If you're unable to stand, you can try and, and practice this with your bottom. Notice how your weight feels in your chair. By simply feeling gravity's pull, we can feel more embodied and even more confident as we speak and move throughout our day. Um, next, we have to shift our language, all right? We can also practice embodiment by simply addressing our bodies as part of us and shifting our language to talk about them as a part of who we are. So much of our value is placed on exerting our bodies and moving them in challenging ways. But we also need to remember that our bodies are beautiful and strong. And even if they look different or function differently than we expect them to, this is still something that we need to tuck away in our mind, okay? Now, again, referring to the author of this article, she says that um, she went through some embodiment coaching a few years back, and one of the recommended practices for her was to give her body a name or a pronoun so that, you know, she can stop treating her body as an object and continuously remember that it is an extension of her, all right, and that it communicates with her body communicates with us too it really does which leads me to our next step learning to listen we have to learn to listen to our bodies beautiful people all right we need to let go of that phrase mind over matter and instead we need to actually ask ourselves questions like does this feel good okay uh do i want to run a bit faster 
Do I need to run a bit farther? Do I need to lay down and take a quick nap? Am I hungry? Like we need to talk to our body and then listen to what it's telling us, right? What is our body saying to us in that particular moment? We have to understand that our bodies do speak to us and they have a lot to say, honey. They have a lot to say. So if we're willing to listen to them, we're going to have a better relationship with our body. They do speak to us about illness. They speak to us about trauma and they can teach us how to take better care of ourselves. But we first need to do what? If you said, listen, ding, 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 ding. Tell them what they've won, Bob, because you'd be correct. All right. And last, but certainly not least, let's seek out movement and sensory experiences. All right. In order to reconnect with our bodies, we can practice daily movement and engage our senses doesn't have to be you know all that exertive or you know strenuous but rather simple practices like walking stretching even sweating can help us remember our physicality and additionally small acts like putting on lotion all right queens you know how like when you come out the bath or out the shower the idea i love putting lotion on my body you can do that with intention and feel that appreciation you know, for your body, okay? Giving yourself a nice hand massage, right? Can also help us reconnect with our bodies, all right? You can engage your senses through smell and taste, all right? It sounds simple, but eat slowly with your eyes closed, right? And 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 really experience the taste of what it is you're eating. Okay. Now, ultimately, that is an example of embodiment. All right. Now, Village, I hope these practices can help you find the connection between your mind and your body once again. And remember that each of us, each of our bodies is beautiful on their own. And our mind is beautiful on its own. But remember that they work together, which is also beautiful. Okay. We can become embodied. We can live more grounded and conscious lives in mind, body, and spirit. I wish this for myself, and I also wish this for you. This next song was recorded by this American group, the Motown label, in 1964. It was the first of their songs to go number one on the Billboard Hot 100 pop singles chart here in the U.S., and it remained there for two weeks. It was also the first of five songs to reach number one. They are considered one of the most successful groups on the Motown label, and Billboard named this song number four on its list of 100 greatest girl group songs of all time. Here's one of my mom's favorite girl groups, The Supremes, with Where Did Our Love Go?
This American R&B group released this next song from the Boomerang for the Boomerang soundtrack in 1992. It was written by Babyface, Antonio Reed, and Daryl Simmons. The song has had both domestic and international success here in the U.S. and everywhere. I mean, just everywhere. It spent 13 weeks, beautiful people, at number one on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. I've played it before, but I just had to play it again. Here's Boyce Men with End of the Road. And when we come back, I will get into today's topic. We belong together And you know that I'm right Why do you play with my heart? Why do you play with my mind? You said we'd be forever Sitting there the time How could you Is long. My heart hurts, baby. Yes, I feel pain. 
Village. So I have a question for you, which really is actually the this evening's topic. Um, is there a link between social media and body image? Hmm? Now, what's important to consider about this question, ladies and gentlemen, is the realization of how impactful social media is in our lives. I have never been a fan of social media, I have to tell you, in particular because I'm, I don't know, I'm more of a private person in terms of who my family and friends are or the activities that I participate in, right? But I'm also aware that as a mental health advocate, it is the best way to get education and advocacy out there for mental health. Okay. And so I came to realize that it's what you do with social media that counts at the end of the day. It also means that you have to be aware of the content that you allow into your hearts and minds. Because, you know, to be honest, there can be a lot of things out there that can cause great, great deals of harm. And if we're not careful, you know, you can find yourself in just facing a world of problems and issues as a result of it. Because sometimes we take to heart the things that we see on social media and we really have to be uh, more discerning, I would say. Now, the last part of what I just said, it's actually true in general as well. Whether you're listening to music, watching television, movies, reading books, etc., we have to be more mindful of what we're taking in, you know, to make sure that we're not absorbing toxic information or that we're not surrounding ourselves with toxic people or ideas. All of that matters, all right? There is an estimated 3.6 billion users worldwide of social media. You know, it's a large part of today's culture but consistently scrolling through posts, particularly images that evoke negative feelings or elevate a certain body type can impact how you see yourself. Because social media is filled with people presenting themselves in their best light, living their best life, you know what I'm talking about. It can be difficult to avoid images and messages that make you feel negative about yourself and or your body, all right? But there are ways that you can curate your feed to make it a healthier space you. So here are some of the ways that social media can affect body image and also some tips for using it in a more positive way. Now, body image refers to your perspective of your body's appearance and how it compares to societal standards. A negative body image can cause unrealistic expectations of how your body should look and it could lead to unhealthy behaviors like disordered eating. Now, just to let you know, Village, disordered eating, or as it was formerly referred to, eating disorders, is an issue that exists both for women and surprisingly, maybe to some, it also impacts men too, all right? There are hundreds of different kinds of mental health conditions, and the more common mental illnesses or mental health conditions are in five main categories Um, in the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, the fifth edition, which is otherwise known as the DSM-5. Now, those categories are mood disorders, anxiety disorders, schizophrenia, dementia, and eating disorders, right? Or disordered eating. So you may be wondering, how can social media distort how you perceive your body? Well, one big way is by constant comparisons, right? Social media... It can hurt your body image by exposing you to images of idealized body types, causing you to compare yourself to them. Now, people end up creating unrealistic ideals for themselves based on what they see, and they end up feeling distressed 
when they're not able to meet those ideas or self-expectations. And that's coming from Neha Chaudhry, who is a doctor, a child and adolescent psychiatrist at Massachusetts General Hospital, or MGH. And she's also at Harvard Medical School. There was a study that was conducted in 2015, and it found that our young queens out there, the ones that spend so much time on Facebook, they feel more concerned about their body because they were comparing themselves to the images they were seeing, and they even began to compare themselves to their peers, all right? Another study conducted in 2021, which um, had a specific age group between uh, 15 and 35-year-olds, that found the more that they compared themselves to people on social media, the more dissatisfied they became and it increased their drive to compare themselves with people on social media. It's a vicious cycle. Behavior again can lead to disordered eating or other unhealthy habits. Now, each type of eating disorder people, beautiful people, um, they do have different symptoms, but here are just some. Of, of some signs of eating disorders in case maybe you or someone you know, you know, is experiencing these or some things, you know, that maybe you might be noticing. Low body weight, frequent weight fluctuations, hiding food, or the person's always eating alone, preoccupation with body weight or appearance, and binging and purging. If you start noticing that every single time your friend, your your daughter, your sister, your cousin, your colleague, your coworker, that every single time that you all have a meal together, they got to get up and go to the bathroom and you keep seeing that over and over again. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like I like to say in my personal life, investigate. Investigate. There's something, there's something to that, right? If we're to be a village, we need to be on the lookout. We need to look out for one another. We need to care about each other, all right? And it's not to bring shame upon anyone. It's not to judge and criticize. But there are people who are dealing with situations right underneath your nose, right underneath your nose. And because you're not aware of it or maybe you're distracted by other things, you may be missing it. So that's why I'm here. That's why I'm here. Now, it's important that if you or someone else you know has an eating disorder, talk to a doctor or a mental health professional. It can help you find some treatment and the path. Okay? Recovery is possible. Okay? It's important to know that. Now, here are some terms that I came across, beautiful people, while I was doing this reading, this research. And I don't know if you've heard of them before. I know I hadn't, but I'm going to go ahead and share them with you anyway. Those terms are fitspo, thinspo, fitspiration, and thinspiration, okay? Now, these are terms that describe social media accounts and images that encourage users to be fit and thin, all right? And again, it's not just an issue for our queens and our queens in training. As quiet as it's kept, it can impact our kings and our kings in training too, all right? If you didn't know that before, now you know. All right. For men, the idea of lean, muscle-laden body types on social media can lead to what's called muscle dysmorphia, which is a type of body dysmorphia when one perceives that their body is not muscular or lean enough. And it can cause people to engage in unhealthy amounts of exercise. And again, it can lead to disordered eating. Stigma around seeking help for mental illness or eating disorders could discourage our kings from getting a diagnosis and treatment. 
right? Now, I know that I've shared with you some of the negative impacts of social media and, and how it affects our body image, but social media can also positively impact body image too. You just have to connect with and build body accepting communities, right? You can even take breaks from social media, you know, something like a cleanse. I do it on a normal basis every Sunday, but there have been times when I've taken an extended period of time away from social media. And trust me when I tell you that it's enough to help boost your mood. You can unfollow people or accounts that do not make you feel good about yourself. And not only is that important for social media, but it's important in your life as well. Be careful of the content that you take in and the people that you have in your life. The good thing is that you can make social media a healthier environment for yourself, right? Again, unfollow, find healthy communities, and take breaks from the scroll. You dig? Surely die. Mm -hmm. Heavenly, when 
that was none other than the temptations with just my imagination. Now, did you know that they were originally called the Elgins? But they soon learned that the name, that was the name of a high-end watch, which had already been adopted by another group. And I always believe that things work out for the best, right? Because the temptations, it has a better ring to it, don't you think? Now, Just My Imagination was their third song to reach number one on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 and the Billboard R&B Singles Chart. This American Singer Village recorded this single on the Motown label in 1984, and it features some guest vocals from some very successful singers in their own right. The song became a major commercial success internationally, topping the charts in Belgium, France, and Spain, reaching number five in Canada as well, okay? As some other countries out there, it did pretty good. Now, this son of Motown CEO, Barry Gordy, was estranged at the time of this recording from his father, and there wasn't much enthusiasm for this song until one of those voices in the song was recognized. Oh, yes, honey. It was the voice of the king of pop himself, Michael Jackson, and even big brother Jermaine lend a helping hand, all right, with the background vocals. Here's Rockwell with Somebody's Watching Me. Are they watching you too? Hmm. I'm just an average man with an average life. I work from nine to five. Hey, hell, I pay the price. All I want is to be left alone 
Okay, beautiful people, it's time for this week's inspirational story. And the name of this week's story is called The Cat in a Hole. I thought y'all, y'all thought I was gonna say the cat in a hat, didn't you? Come on, be real. Now it's called The Cat in a Hole. Here's the story. One day an old man was having a stroll in the forest when he suddenly saw a little cat stuck in a hole. The poor animal was struggling to get out. So he gave him his hand to help him get out but the cat scratched his hand out of fear. The man pulled his hand back and started screaming with pain, but he did not stop. He tried to give a hand to the cat again and again. Another man who was watching close by screamed, for God's sake, stop helping this cat. He's going to get himself out of there eventually. Well, the man ignored him and he continued attempting to save the animal until he finally succeeded. And then he walked over to that man and said, son, it is the cat's instincts that make him scratch and hurt, all right? But it's my job to love and care. Now, what's the moral of the story, Village? Always treat everyone with respect and kindness, but do not expect other people to treat you the way you wanna be treated. We cannot control how others react to certain situations, but you can certainly control how you react to them.
was Natalie Cole with I've Got Love on My Mind, which was on her third album, Unpredictable, released in 1977 and certified gold, as well as one of my favorites, Let's Just Kiss and Say Goodbye by the Manhattans. It was written by a member of the group, Winfred Lovett, who was the bass singer and songwriter for the group. Now, this song became a worldwide success, appearing on musical charts of countless countries, and it was one of the biggest hits of the 70s. Well, kings and queens, it looks like we've come to the end of another show. I do hope that the information provided will be of help to you. Remember, it's always a good idea to do your own research, no matter what the topic is, especially if your life's involved. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. I'm looking forward to being with you all again next week here in the Village and every Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Please be sure to follow Village Mentality on Instagram at villagementality.ckm as in Mary and on Facebook at Village Mentality, the podcast. You can also catch all episodes of Village Mentality on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Anchor, Radio Public, and the links that are available on Instagram, again, at villagementality.ckm, and on Facebook at Village Mentality, the podcast. As well, you can go to theawakenlounge.com backslash village hyphen mentality to catch episodes there too. And just remember, God has got me and he's got you too. Be blessed, beautiful people. And here's to brighter days.
energy so stalling, yeah. Everybody's running scared. We used to be so carefree, we used to be so happy, we used to have everything we need. Yeah. 